Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host, Richie Plush. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, a podcast brought to you by the Learn Behavioral Network, a leading provider in ABA services all across the country. I'm really excited for you to hear this week's conversation where I sat down with Dr. Tyra Sellers and Dr. Linda LeBlanc. And we spend a lot of time talking about supervision and how that is important for the quality of the programs that we provide and really um, our field as a whole, applied behavior analysis as a whole. So really excited for you to dive into that and enjoy, hopefully you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Tyra Sellers and Dr. Linda LeBlanc. Dr. Sellers has her JD, PhD, and BCBAD and she's the Director of Ethics at the BACB. She has over 20 years of experience and is on the editorial board of three journals. Dr. Linda LeBlanc is a licensed psychologist as well as having her PhD and her BCBAD. She is the president of LeBlanc Behavioral Consulting and has held academic positions at Claremont McKenna, Western Michigan, and Auburn. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you, Linda and Tyra, so much for joining us today. We're so glad to have you on our episode. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Me too. Thanks for having us. We're excited to talk with you. So you both have been really instrumental in our field and in the progress of our field. Um, What prompted you to co-author Building and Sustaining Meaningful and Effective Relationships as a Supervisor and Mentor? What prompted that? (laughs) um, Let's see. Uh, Linda and I had the pleasure of working together uh, at a large provider agency for um, a good bit. And we did a lot of work together around um, supervision and mentorship and training um, and just continued to have those conversations about what the field maybe needed and how we could do a better job. And then I, I think I might be the guilty party that at one point said, you know what we should do, Linda? We should write a book. Uh, to which Linda replied, absolutely not. <laughs> um, but then the conversation proceeded uh, in the fashion of listing all of the things, should we write this book that we were definitely not going to write, um, that we would have to make sure we included in the book. And that's kind of what, ha- is, that, is that correct, Linda? Is that a good characterization? That's, that's my recollection, is that I was... <laughs> Like, no, we don't want to write a book. Do you have any idea how much work that's going to be? And we couldn't do a book, but if we were going to tell people about this, here's all the things we would tell them. And we got progressively more excited. Um, I think we had a history of feeling like the conversations that we had about supervision and mentoring often took a different tone than when we have those conversations with each other, rather than, you know, kind of seeing maybe some of the other conversations that people were were having. And, And we, as we talked, we really felt the importance of helping to try to reframe the conversation around supervision, not just as a thing you do, hours you get, rules you follow, but as a 
a way of thinking about how you're influencing other people and doing that purposefully. And so I think we became convinced that we were talking about this in a different way and that it would be worthwhile for other people to hear it. So we ended up saying, okay, yes, let's write a book. We don't have anything better to do for the next two years. <laughs> I, that's exactly right. And I, and I think the addition of an understanding for us, at least, that supervision and mentorship wasn't just about the, the number of hours that someone was accruing during fieldwork supervision uh, experience, but was something that needed to be planful and was important and likely needed to evolve and be different at different stages in all of our lives, whether or not you're uh, you know, still in school learning or you've been in the field for a very long time. So sort of that idea that there was a broader context within, within which this conversation and this content could be covered. That's great. Linda, I want to go back to something you said. Um, it's really about, you know, you mentioned it's not just about the hours. You both said that, um, but you also said it's about influencing other people. Um, tell us more about what you mean by that. Well, um, what I mean by that is that when you think as a behavior analyst, you understand that you are simultaneously um, a stimulus, maybe a discriminative stimulus, maybe a conditioned stimulus, maybe even a conditioned aversive stimulus to other people. You evoke their behavior, you elicit their behavior, but you also are um, a provider of a variety of consequences for their behavior. Maybe you provide relatively little in a purposeful way, but you still influence other people, maybe inadvertently. Um, we may not always realize when we are modeling behavior, we're not intentionally doing so. We just happen to be in someone's environment and they are in a position where they're going to imitate our behavior. So that notion of really thinking through, how do I wanna influence this person? What am I trying to model? Don't forget you're always a model, even when you are not thinking about being one. And what do I want to respond to? You know, I think we're all human and we have this natural tendency to respond to the things that we, we want to change rather than, you know, as certainly, you know, Aubrey Daniels and performance management and OBM says is, our most powerful tool is reinforcement. And, you know, you are unlikely to comment upon and praise all of the amazing things that people do unless you are actively thinking about yourself as the provider of those contingencies and as the architect of their future repertoires. And so the difference between some stuff I happen to get lucky and do well as a supervisor, and I've certainly been in that group for many years, and the things that I actively design as part of the experience and the environment that I create for a supervisee, that's really a world of difference, I think, and it can produce very different effects for the supervisee. Yeah, that's such a great point. I mean, the, the concept of we're always 
we're always a model. I think that's that's something I learned when I became a parent more than I learned when I was supervising or you know influencing or mentoring people, and that was something that just was really eye opening to me. Um, that's, a, that's such a great point, Tyra. I want to ask you. Um, our field is really young in so many ways. So many of our professionals that are supervising and mentoring other people are at the beginning of their careers or in the first, you know, three to five years of their careers. Um, how can a book like this help people and particularly that group to be better mentors, not just now, but for years to come? Yeah, that's a great question and certainly accurate. Um, and and while we have greater numbers of newer or younger, less experienced individuals, we, we all were at that place some point in our careers. Um, so it's important that we remember, you know, that that's not a new thing. It just is um, a slightly larger N right now of people that are that are in that group. Um, I think that I hope that this book can help in two ways. I actually think that the bigger burden given that we have a large number of individuals that are new um, to the field, to the profession, uh, I feel like the, la the larger burden is actually on those of us that have been in the field for a while, mm -hmm. because we need to find ways to um, sort of take that process that Linda mentioned of being reflective on what have we done well, what's worked well, what things have we um, done in a purposeful manner? What things were sort of contingency shaped, but ended up working well and how can we replicate that? And we need to have more scholarly work and more empirical work around effective training and supervisory and mentorship practices because we need to disseminate that information to the folks that are newer. And so hopefully the book can help in that way. Hopefully it can be a call to maybe more seasoned individuals to engage in that self-reflection, um, to do some of that sort of self-evaluation and to make sure that if they are effective, that, they, that they're being thoughtful and purposeful, that they're not sort of just falling on their good luck and fortune, that they were sensitive to the right contingencies that created a great repertoire for themselves. Um, and then I think for newer individuals, hopefully this book will help them be able to discriminate good high quality supervision training and mentorship so that if they're not quite getting what they need or what they should be getting they can help arrange the environment such that they get good high quality supervision um, and so that they can be mindful and active participants in their supervision uh, in a way that early on they're being purposeful in the repertoires that they develop so not only becoming great behavior analysts, great clinicians, but also thoughtful and mindful supervisors because everybody who is a trainee and a supervisee is likely to become a supervisor and a trainer in some capacity. So hopefully this book will um, be meaningful for sort of both sides of the coin. Those of us that need to be a little more active and thoughtful in how we're helping other people through their experiences as well as those who are currently trainees and supervisees or newer supervisors and need to kind of figure out what what how they're going to tackle this. You know, I, I think that's a great point, Tyra. And I have begun using this book as a book for people who are going through supervision right now. And the, the rationale for that is 
so much of what we learn about supervision comes from the experience that we are having. And so if you are reading these kinds of thoughts and reflections and exercises while you're having the experience, you may actually perceive your supervisor's behavior differently, perceive their attempts to provide feedback or, um, or their, their focus on doing things again and again until you reach a certain criterion, you may have a greater understanding of why that occurs or, or even of why your supervisor might prompt you again and again to be a little more on time or organized or thoughtful about the questions that you're asking and that there is a real reason behind that. You know, over time, I began to provide that rationale with many of the things I did with supervisees. I'd like to ask you to think a little bit about your questions because it might allow us to use our time together differently and gives me an idea of what you really mostly understand and need a confidence boost on versus something I really need to help you understand better. But not every supervisor knows to give that narrative, and I didn't probably for the first 15 years that I was doing this. So in many ways, a person who's going through supervision that has this book can kind of maybe learn more about how to grab from what they're experiencing and translating that into what I intend to do one day, rather than imitating without that awareness or narrative or rationale. Um, so I think hopefully the book can be useful for people who are even just beginning their supervision with a reread as a new supervisor in the one to three years and a reread at the 10 year mark, because we did include some chapters in there for people who have been in the field a while to really help them with some of the challenges that we tend to get in that five to 10 year mark of, am I still learning? Is this still exciting to me? Am I feeling like, you know, these people not knowing is a problem rather than an opportunity and, and some of those kinds of things. So different chapters are likely gonna be more impactful on people at different points in their career. Fantastic. And it really touches on that evolution that you guys have mentioned, right? It really touches on that, how you go from evolving maybe some brand new, uh, you know, mentoring people who are just in their school versus mentoring somebody who's, you know, earned a promotion and is supervising people in a different capacity. I think that really speaks to that evolution. It's really interesting. You know, I'm thinking about, I'm hearing some of what you're both saying, and I'm reflecting on my own experience and realizing man, I am guilty of so many of the things you're saying. And I think a lot of us are in a lot of ways, right? I, I gave feedback the way that my supervisor gave feedback, not because I understood what I was saying, but that was just the way it was modeled for me. And I probably fumbled that multiple times and did a terrible job for a while. But and then you find your own rhythm, you find your own strategies and techniques. And 
I'm, I'm very hopeful that this will help people skip some of those uh, uh, scrapes and bruises that we've experienced along the way. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, I think Linda, and one thing that has um, solidified Linda and I continuing to work on this topic is that we both and I don't mean to speak for you, Linda, so correct me if I'm wrong, but um, we both seem to have this shared idea that uh, the, the, the value that we place on the work we do with our clients and consumers um, is exactly the same as the value that we place on the work that we do with trainees and supervisees. And so we, we would never in our wildest dream subject our consumers to a, a trial and error, sort of let me just throw some stuff out there. Let me do what other people, um, you know, kind of modeled for me and see if it works. We're much more planful. And I think that there is um, uh, an equal requirement that we treat our supervision and our training and our mentorship the same way. Um, and that we, we are planful and we take time and we, um, we don't just sort of do a trial and error or kind of do what other people modeled for us without having discriminated that yes that is what i want to do and this is why and this is the outcome i'm looking for i completely agree with that and you know we try to in some ways take a more conversational tone in this book certainly than a lot of my other publications which are more technical writing we tried to create the feel in this book that you're having an intellectual conversation, but a conversation with our co-author, Shala Alai, with Tyra, with me, and that for many people in our field, they may never have had these intellectual conversations before, and they may not have had a very seasoned supervisor themselves to have had these personal conversations or professional conversations with. And so creating a, a way to benefit from different people's experiences and wisdom and hearing the message of this stuff and the kind of bumps that happen, they've happened for virtually everyone because we're humans. And so this is understandable from a behavior analytic framework and it's addressable from a behavior analytic framework. And here are some things to get you started. But I think at, in different points in the book, we all talk about the notion that um, everything we're suggesting, do this. That lesson was learned on the back of a, uh-oh, I did the other thing. And I don't want you to, to have that, um, you know, negative experience or negative outcome or delayed insight the way that I had to. So we kind of were trying to view it as a mentored conversation as a gift to younger colleagues in some ways. That's great. I want to I dive into this concept uh, a little bit of the work we provide for our families and for our clients and for our patients is similar to what we provide or what we should be providing for those that we're supervising. How can, um, how can quality supervision 
really drive progress for our clients and caregivers and, and the families that are getting our support? Um, well, I mean, clearly the quality of the services that are provided are directly linked to the quality of the training um, to engage in those clinical practices. Um, and, you know, we have sort of this multi-layered enhanced responsibility in our profession because we have a model where we're providing services to vulnerable populations. Um, we are relying on often a multi-tiered system of service delivery where we have maybe behavior techs providing uh, direct level service and then maybe we have a mid-level clinician and we may have a senior clinician or something like that above that. Um, and often some of the folks that are providing some level um, within that tiered model are new or are trainees in that setting, right? You may have a behavior tech who's a trainee or a clinician who um, is brand new or is accruing their fieldwork experience hours. So you have a vulnerable population, you have um, a, a powerful and amazing technology that allows us to purposefully arrange the environment to best um, support individuals to be independent and to live their fullest life um, in a model where you got quite a few cooks in the kitchen and a lot of them may be new or may be training. So I think it's um, amazing to me that anybody would ever consider the quality of services we provide without acknowledging that it's inextricably linked to the quality of the training and the supervision. And on, and I even mean ongoing supervision to folks that, as Linda mentioned, have, you know, maybe they're five or 10 years um, into their career, our field moves fairly fast. And that's one of the benefits of our profession is that it's directly linked to research. And so we have just this perfect recipe of we have to be on top of our game at every level, at the training level, at the supervision level, at the clinical delivery level, at the uh, staying in contact with the literature level. So um, that's kind of a, a sort of um, an overview answer. Linda, you may have some more specific grains of wisdom in there to link it um, to quality care. Well, I think one area in which it may the book and this idea might influence quality care um, is that we cover strategies for teaching some skills that are often not explicitly focused on in grad school. So it is, you know, not only that you are using the technology to teach the behavior analytic repertoires, but that you're also can be actively targeting some other, we use the term pivotal um, repertoires in the book. Some people use the term cusp, but the notion that you can use this behavioral approach to teach a problem solving repertoire and to do multiple exemplar training with that problem solving repertoire, that ethical issues are appropriate for problem solving that discomfort or um, disengagement in the therapeutic relationship with a family is appropriate for a problem-solving repertoire, that supporting um, an employee who has a performance problem, that's a problem that can be appropriate for a problem-solving repertoire. So 
the notion that we should be explicitly teaching that kind of thing or explicitly teaching professional interpersonal relationship skills, that I think isn't covered in our behavior analytic curriculum. Right. But that doesn't mean it's not critical for success in a professional environment. So I guess that's just the other thing that I would add is the notion of not only how can and should you teach, but what should you teach using our behavioral technology and that having all of those skill sets is going to, I would think, really impact the quality of the services for that family, for that client, for that organization, if you're an OBM. Yeah, I think that's so important. I mean, you're right. It's not it's not taught in graduate programs. It's not taught in in graduate schools. It's not in, you know, everyone refers to the Cooper book. It, you know, you have to apply the science in a slightly different way. And I think it's really great that we're reframing, to your point, reframing the conversation a little bit and really shining light on on something for people that's alluded to but never said. And that's when you graduate and you pass your BCBA exam, that's not the end of learning for you. That's the beginning of some learning in a, in a different way. And I think that's really important for people to hear and to understand. You know, when you get your BCBA, that's a, the, your, your ability to learn and access a whole new uh, set of people is going to expand. And so don't stop learning. Don't stop reading books. Don't stop referring to literature, to your point, Tyra, from before. Um, it's never a good idea to stop learning. And when you do feel like you stop learning, it's a good time to revisit some things. And I'm glad that you touch on that in your book, because I think there are a lot of people who are at that 10 year mark and they're like, oh, well, I, you know, these people should know this already. Well, maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't. It's our, it's our role to teach them. It's our role to help teach them. And we shift from being learners to being teachers very early in our careers. And that continues throughout our careers. Yeah, well said. And I, I do want to highlight Linda's point that um, the link to excellent services for caregivers and for consumers um, that I think is unique to the material in this book is that there are these other skill sets. You can be the smartest, you can be the top of your class, you can be uh, the most technically precise, but if you're not organized, if you don't have good interpersonal skills, if you can't manage your time, if you can't prioritize, if you can't deliver feedback in a way that affects the performance change that you need and makes that recipient want to receive that feedback from you, you're not going to be able to deliver effective high quality services likely. And um, I, I think that's a, a very critical point to highlight um, in terms of what sets this book, at least currently, uh, apart from some of the other material, even our own material um, out there that covers supervision. That, Tyra just mentioned this, or perhaps Rich, you are the one who mentioned the shift from learner to teacher, supervisor, mentor. And I think one of the things that was really useful and evident in the process of writing the book was trying to sit in both of those positions simultaneously. And we were very fortunate as three co-authors to have different strengths and skill sets and frameworks such that we were in the same conversation helping our co-authors understand one thing and yet learning other things. 
And the more you can bring that readiness to in the moment teach, in the moment learn, regardless of who is in the interaction, I think the better you become at building a long, sustainable, variable, enjoyable career where you continue to grow. And so um, that's also something nobody teaches you, uh, you know, of like, you know, we barely even yet focus on how to teach people to simultaneously maximize their speaker and listener roles in any interaction, much less to kind of sit with these two perspectives and to rapidly transition. And sometimes it even felt like one of us would say something that we, and then realize that's pretty good. Maybe we should put that in the book. <laughs> I, I just behaved and then I kind of came to an insight about my behavior such that I am, you know, constantly learning and evolving my own repertoires. And so one thing that would be super exciting as a result of this book is if people actually started to do research. You know, we really created this book as a, a framework to help those practicing in our field. But gosh, it would be fantastic to see people take some of these ideas and bring an empirical approach to it. How, are, how could we best teach someone to, you know, most efficiently respond from these two roles and what have you? Any of these kinds of questions that could really drive our field forward. And we'll revise the book if we find out we were wrong. You know, Amen. That's, that's, that's that process. As we're diving more into digital practices and that's becoming more and more of a commonplace, I imagine that's the same with supervision and mentorship. And so I'm wondering, are there things that we need to keep in mind or things that we need to consider as we're um, building a virtual relationship, mentorship type uh, interaction with people? Um, you know, I think that that's a very timely question, particularly given everything that's going on in the world right now. Um, you know, there are folks that specialize in remote or distance supervisory practices. So Dr. Lisa Britton and Matt Sicoria wrote a lovely book that focuses on supervisory practices particularly of the remote variety. And they have great recommendations um, and considerations, uh, you know, anywhere from technology choices and planning for issues and having backup plans to uh, rapport building and whatnot. Mm. I will say from my limited foray into the research around remote feedback, remote training, um, it appears that it is just as effective, sometimes if not more effective than live supervision. I think we're very lucky uh, in this day and age that we have such wide accessibility of technology. You know, folks can get their emails on their phone. Um, right. We can talk to each other from across the world and see each other in almost perfect real time. You know, you can have, um, bug in the ear technology, you know, uh, ear pods in so that someone can be giving instructions or coaching during live therapy delivery. So, uh, you know, yes, there are considerations like 
um, confidentiality and, you know, uh, when your technology fails, what is your protocol and um, etiquette around technology and then just increasing comfort level and making sure that you're also addressing any barriers that you may not have been attending to. Like, do you assume that everybody has a smartphone? Because, you know, not everybody does. Do you assume everybody has a laptop or high-speed internet? So uh, I, I think there are definitely considerations that will be born from people um, trying it out and doing it. And I'm very grateful that folks are uh, adding that content to our scholarly literature. So there are several articles recently that have come out to give folks support around, you know, switching over to um, using remote practices for service delivery and for um, supervision. So, um, so to your answer, yes, I think it's happening and I think people are doing it pretty well. And I think it's, I think we're gonna be okay using that platform. You're absolutely right, Tara. I think one of the things I've noticed is that the challenges have shifted, right? So the challenge of battling traffic and making sure I have gas in my car and making sure I can, my phone is charged all the way so I can get to whoever I need to get to and provide that mentorship in person is now the challenge of making sure my kids aren't in the background and that my <laughs> Wi-Fi is working and that, you know, all of those things are happening. And so I do think there's a bit of a shift in terms of the technology, but I do feel that we're just as connected as we were before. And in some sense, um, I almost feel like it's a little easier to connect, you know, during the time where I could be in the car and maybe on the phone, which is not necessarily the safest thing to do. Um, now I can be looking at, at my laptop and talking to somebody face to face. And so, you know, it's different, but it's still, it's still great connection. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, to that point, I honestly think if, if anything, the overall effect will be to create a deeper connection because you know often we're providing services for example in people's homes or we've got families coming to clinics and we're sort of seeing their lives um but often they don't see that of us or even with our supervisees and trainees we're seeing them in very controlled conditions um and you know they may be come coming into our office trailing some of their you know life events of the day but i think it's humbling and increases our humanity um, you know, if I am on a call with a parent or a school district or a supervisee or a trainee, and they do see my teenager walk through the background or the dog jump on me or what have you, right? And so I think to some degree, it uh, does have this potential effect of increasing our connectedness and just remembering that, that real life is happening for all of us all the time and we need to be flexible and we need to be compassionate uh, for um, sort of taking into consideration that, that that's the context that we all are trying to get work done um, in, so. Right, right, as Linda said, we're all human, right? Yes, painfully so, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, one final question for you sure. and, and this is just, I'm always curious. So what role have your mentors played in you and your career? And how have your mentors helped you be um, the author of a book that's, a, that's now out? How have they helped shape your career and, and your experience? Uh, you know, I've been in the field a long time, 25-ish years. I've had the 
the fortune of having some fantastic mentors and supervisors, some of whom honestly have provided amazing mentorship in a simple 15 minute conversation on, you know, a, a tram between the airport and the airport parking lot at a conference where you just happen to connect with some fantastic person and you have this really meaningful conversation. So I think um, what my, my mantra in my career has always been, and this came from a, a derivation of something an early mentor said to me, but it's always been engage in a lot of behavior and let that behavior get shaped. Mm -hmm. And so I think just being my, my um, openness uh, to meet new opportunities has afforded me the chance to connect with so many people. Um, and more than some of my direct mentors and direct supervisors, the folks that I have been privileged to uh, have as my trainees, as my students, as my supervisees have taught me and shaped me so much as well as clients and caregivers and parents along the way. Um, the book specifically, the way mentorship plays into that is that um, Linda is, I'm lucky to consider her a colleague, but more than that, she has been a supervisor and is a mentor to me in many ways. And um, so, you know, that was pretty awesome to be able to work on a book about supervision and mentorship with two of my mentors, Linda and Shala. Um, but I think honestly, what I have mostly taken away from all of my experiences has just been move forward through the world with an open heart, make a lot of mistakes, learn from them, and do your best to try to teach other people some skills that minimize them having to make more mistakes than they have to, because we're all going to make them. So yeah. I like that. I like that. So the title of the book, Building and Sustaining Meaningful and Effective Relationships as a Supervisor and Mentor. Um, where can they, where can people find that? Um, they can find that mouthful of a title at Sloan Publishing. Uh, it's S-L-O-A-N publishing.com. And they can just click on the Applied Behavior Analysis tab and it'll come up. Or I usually find it just by Googling supervision and the word Sloan and it pops up for me. So um, there, you know, there are a few print versions as well as an e-version. Um, folks can adopt it as a, a text for a class um, that, you know, maybe is uh, supervisory practices, a practicum class, um, or just use it in their clinical practice. That's great too. Great, great. And we'll add links to that in the show notes, but great. Thank you both so much for your time today. I really appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you both. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, this is Linda, and I was delighted to be part of the conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate you reaching out. And um, yeah, supervision is such a critical topic that uh, it's great. It's any, any opportunity to talk about it is amazing. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. LeBlanc and Dr. Sellers. I really appreciate their enthusiasm for a subject that has historically not always been the most engaging. They're doing such important work of bringing information and tools to people who don't have that. When people graduate from their uh, master's programs or they finish their ABA coursework, there's not a lot of tools readily available for them as they're starting their career in supervising and in uh, mentoring other people. It's so important that they're 
that there continue to be more research and there continue to be more publications along the lines of these to really help people as they're getting started. Uh, I really appreciated their call to action in terms of research, and I would love to hear how people are doing more research on, on these particular topics. One of the things that really stood out to me in this conversation, for me personally, was this evolution of supervision. It's something I hadn't really thought about, but it's, it's really sparked a lot of retrospective thinking in my mind. Um, you know, over my career, I've shifted from supervising people that were just trying to get their BCBA and they were finishing coursework and preparing for the exam to now people that I'm meeting with and, and supporting have either started their own businesses or they're overseeing uh, entire regions, uh, their clinical directors or their higher level clinicians. And that, that opportunity to think about how I've evolved at the same time that the people I'm supporting has evolved was really um, just insightful in our conversation. It really sparked like a lot of a lot of thinking that um, that came afterwards. You know, one of the things that I'm really thankful for is that there are tools like this available now that weren't because uh, I think about all the mistakes I made certainly when I was starting, uh, and and just thankful that not everyone has to make those same mistakes that I did. So if anyone wants to write a book to tell me where to go next, I would be happy to read it and happy to have them on this uh, on this podcast to share a little bit about it. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or feedback, feel free to send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com. And please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.